Welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. And I'm Spro. So for our season finale, Spro, you and I watched 12 critically acclaimed international films from 2021 to decide which we felt was the best in the world. In the end, we chose Scarborough, the Canadian social drama directed by Shasha Nakai and Rich Williamson, which also won eight Canadian Screen Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for 13-year-old Liam Diaz. Today, we're bringing you two special episodes featuring Connor M. Casey and Aliyah Kanani, two actors from our Best Picture in the World 2022 winner, Scarborough. First up is Mr. Casey, actor, writer, artist, and former OSU Buckeye. Mr. Casey joined us to discuss his role as Corey, the hard-fisted father character. Let's jump right into the interview. All right, so... Who's from, who's from Ohio? We both are. We both are, yeah. Oh, you're both Ohio. I have a weird connection with Ohio, like, kismically, because I don't know what it is, but if it's... I just love Ohio, but... Um, do you know Bobby Putka? Does Does anybody know that name? Robert Putka? No. That's why I asked you that last night, bro. I texted you that. So he's an indie filmmaker in, in Cleveland? Yeah, so in 2008 or so, I made a short film. The first thing I ever did was a short film with my brothers, Dylan Casey and Lyndon Casey, and Rich Williamson, the guy who did Scarborough, obviously. And then I got this message similar to what you guys sent me, but it was uh, over Facebook. And it was a young uh, filmmaker out of Cleveland who hadn't made anything yet. And he had this script and it was just really funny the way he wrote the message. He's like very self-deprecating, very like Ohio style humor of just like, you might not like this script and sorry for (laughs) wasting your time, but thanks for reading this. And I've already probably pissed you off. Of course, I loved him just from reading that message. And then we made a short film together and it, and it got into South called Mouthful. And uh, we just made films for like five years there. And I love the guy. I don't, I think he tragically left the film industry and became a lawyer. So we lost him, but <laughs> that's a jump. Yeah. I know. He was going to be the next Cassavetes, but then he wanted to make money, I guess. Was it entertainment law? Like he was I like, don't I'm even just, know. I'm sick of seeing people get screwed by this industry. <laughs> Probably that one. <laughs> it yeah. looks like, I mean, he, the last film he did was Mr. Limbo in 2021. He did Mr. Limbo. So maybe he's still, I, I feel like he's still, he's still going to come back. He's so talented. He's He's so real and honest and I just feel like he, he can't resist. Like some people just can't resist and I think he's he's one of them. I'm going to write down his name. Is he yeah. about our age? Because you're you're exactly a month older than I am. He is ten, almost 10 years younger than us, I think. Oh, yeah, he's a young guy. That hurts. Yeah, that's nice, right. but it hurts also. <laughs> I know. Like he, When I met him, I'm like, how old are you? He's like 18. I'm like, you're a genius. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? What what are you what are your prevailing memories of of Cleveland? Well, when I was in Cleveland, LeBron had just been traded, mm, so it was like the decision. Looked, yeah, yeah, that wasn't a trade. <laughs> <laughs> he took his talents to South Beach, <laughs> which was just not a very. It left like a a, a wake of destruction through the city, and, uh, and I remember just single T shirts dangling in a mall sporting goods store with the word hate. Instead of Miami Heat, <laughs> I was like, okay, I get it. Wow, um, you saw us at one of our worst moments. <laughs> you know, I was in Ohio when LeBron was playing for Notre Dame, I believe, his high school. Oh, St. Vincent, St. Mary. Sorry, yeah, that that was it. Same, yeah, and you know, he was in the newspaper. Like it was, we were. I played tennis for the at Ohio State, and you'd look at the newspaper, and front page would be LeBron 
scores 100 points in a high school game and then the Ohio State Buckeye, like underneath there, <laughs> Buckeyes win Fiesta Bowl. Like he was, he was like the, the life of the, the state. It yes, felt like. he was. Yes, he was. So very tragic to see him depart, but he came back and in good <laughs> storytelling fashion. Mm-hmm. And then departed again. I call him Cleveland's baby daddy. Like he, yeah. he gave us a championship, <laughs> a little baby, yeah. and then he left again. So it's like, uh, we don't know whether to praise him or just absolutely hate him. So right. <laughs> it's like that scene in Will in uh, Fresh Prince when the dad comes. How come he don't want me, man? Yeah, yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> How come you don't want me, man? All right. Well, what we do on our show is kind of talk cinema through the lens of the problematic and often misguided Academy Awards. Do you ever watch the Oscars? I do. Yep. And have you ever daydreamed of winning an Oscar? My relationship with the Oscars is I grew up with my parents really fixated and hooked by Billy Crystal and his sort of show tune introduction. Like that was... So the Oscars were a big thing in our family. My favorite was the uh, David Letterman Oscars when he he did, it was like an ironic Oscars where he kind of was like, Uma, Oprah. I don't know if you remember that shtick. I I remember that. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the 67th Annual Academy Awards. I won't lie to you. I'm very, very excited. And (laughs) I've been dying to do something all day. And I think maybe we can take care of this Oprah. Uma? Uma? Oprah? I feel much better. That's YouTube gold right there. But um, anytime I daydreamed about it, I did definitely did want to win an Oscar and maybe still do in some ways. But I always trip on the stairs when, when I'm going up them. <laughs> Just roll around in agony on the stage for a couple minutes. Who was that that actually tripped, Spro? Was that Jennifer Lawrence? Was that J-Law? Yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. She would like trip everywhere. She was very clumsy. Charming. <laughs> it's in her right. contract. She has to trip. <laughs> uh, you, you know that David Letterman one too, the one that I remember, because uh, I saw it in the theater. Did you ever, did you ever see Cabin Boy? Yes. With, uh, okay. Monkey. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Where he had all these celebrities deliver his line. <laughs> Anybody want to buy a monkey? <laughs> Anybody want to buy a monkey? <laughs> Good. So you've got a relationship, a standing relationship with the Oscars, uh, mm-hmm. so, sort of, sort of positive sounding. That's good. Yeah, we we spend our time kind of not shitting on the Oscars, but being like, hey, you guys got this one wrong. My last question would be, what's a movie or a performance that that really knocked you on your ass? It doesn't need to be an Oscar winner. Doesn't need to be a recent one. Maybe it was one that uh, you saw when you were younger, or could be one you saw recently. Uh, I have a few in that and that have sort of knocked me on my ass. I, I'm I'm the kind of person who gets easily sort of blown away, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I think currently I'm getting knocked on my ass by Jennifer Coolidge on White Lotus. I just think that she's sort of ascended to this icon and she's really representing where our culture is at right now. I think the character she's playing, materialistic, lacking in self-awareness and just like this half a billionaire who's just going through life, destroying and consuming everything she sees. I just find her hilarious and just everything that comes out of her mouth right now. I'm like waiting to hear it. And then I always laugh. That would definitely be who's who's knocking me out right now. And then Denzel Washington can do an interview and he knocks me on my ass. So that's um, facts. Right. So and then I think for me personally, when Owen Wilson just first came on the scene, like Shanghai noon, Owen Wilson, I know it's a 
not a film for the record books necessarily, <laughs> but it's good. Funny. I like that movie. He just, he just came at it with this new style of humor that hit me at the, I was 21, 22, looking to see what I was going to do next in my life. And I just see this guy who looks like he has no business being in a, in a film. You know, his nose is broken, but it's working for him. He looks like he's saying words that aren't even in the script. And everything just, just hit me. Bottle Rocket's a real special one. Bottle, yeah. So I saw Shanghai and those. And then I went back and saw Bottle Rocket and was like, okay, these guys are here to play. Loved it. A fun fact that nobody really probably cares about, Shanghai Noon, Mm -hmm. my grandma's last film she saw in her lifetime. She went to the theater, saw Shanghai Noon, went to the hospital. Wow. So it killed her is what you're saying. (laughs) No, no. no. Lung cancer killed her. Oh, there you go. (laughs) I think the first time I saw him and laughed at him was Royal Tenenbaums, and it was the line where he he says, you know, everybody knows Custer bought it at Little Bighorn, but what this book presupposes is maybe he didn't. (laughs) Uh, It's the stupidest fucking line in the West. Great. I love it. All right. Well, we asked you to be here today, Mr. Casey, because you were a topic of conversation in our last episode, more specifically um, a movie that you were in. Spro and I discussed 12 international movies from 2021, all of which won their country's respective versions of best picture. There were a lot of good ones, but Spro and I really felt Scarborough was the best of the best. And you were part of that award-winning cast. And when I say award-winning, I do, of course, mean the Canadian Screen Awards. A lot of very justified awards went to Scarborough. And that's actually makes this sort of an outlier for us because normally we're taking awards. This time I'd like to give it more. For those of you that may have missed the last episode, Scarborough is a Canadian film directed by Shasha Nakai and Rich Williamson based on the 2017 novel by Catherine Hernandez, also wrote the screenplay. The film takes place in the eponymous district east of Toronto, tells the story of three impoverished children, their families, and an idealistic teacher whose after-school literacy program kind of brings them all together. How did you come to be involved with Scarborough? So I am good friends with Rich in, in Shasha. Uh, Rich Williamson went to film school, Ryerson Film School, with my brother, Lyndon Casey, who's also a director and editor. And the three of us were sort of like the guys from Bottle Rocket, actually. I was Bob Maplethorpe of the group. And we were we were just three guys. The, the two of them were in school. I was the older brother who was latching on to their kind of film energy that they had and, and starring in their short films that they had to make for class. And I just I really bonded with Rich. He started off kind of making some more comedic stuff, but I always loved his style, his sort of documentary style, tight close-ups, etc. And just managed to m- maintain a friendship with Rich throughout this whole t- kind of film industry. He's one of the few guys that I've felt like from a creative place, we've just always uh, been honest with each other. And then when this project came to be, he it was like St. Patrick's Day and we were a couple uh, Guinnesses down and he said, I got a project for you. And then a year later, he actually came through with it and asked me to audition. And that's how it came to be. So the character that you play in Scarborough, Corey, isn't necessarily the villain of the film, but he's certainly villainous. And yeah. to your credit, he still kind of has a few moments of, of humanity. He's a complex character. What, what was your approach to playing this kind of broken and hateful human being who has who really feels like he's trying to do the right thing at some points? The process that I go through with, with any acting is, I guess it would be the checkoff method if you were to name it. it. Basically, read the script, the scenes that I'm in, sort of 
try to find out what my character's doing, like find a verb. So I think when I was reading it, it became pretty apparent to me that he was rejecting other people and, and vilifying other people. So I just sort of, you know, understood to what does the, when you vilify someone, what do you do to them? How do you treat them? And, and why would you treat somebody as a villain? And, and I think that Corey saw people that weren't the same skin color as him as villains, people that had come to his country and taken what he felt was his. So that's where I, I came from. But then, you know, the questions continue to be like, why, why? And I think he felt that they were people were a threat to his daughter and and perhaps in his past he, his parents or his father who had most likely left him or died from drugs had been uh, you know he blames immigrants for for that so it, anytime I was coming in in, in trying to reject people in, in scenes that were uh, the immigrants in this in this story I think that he was doing it because he thought he was protecting his daughter the documentary style filmmaking that you were privy to in this it it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for mistakes for character breaking and whatnot like that when you say like when you're intaking this character when you're like i have to play this character with the camera so up close when i have to feel everything that this character is feeling like does it for me like i feel like i would be worried or scared that i was going to implant some of this character within me (laughs) does that like come up like you're like man i gotta play this bastard and i cannot let this bastard in but i had to let him in so much that like this up close camera angle is gonna is not gonna see me acting i do think that there's an element of uncomfortability playing that character i show up in a bad mood and i kind of leave in a bad mood maybe that's a, a nod to my rookie acting abilities i mean from what i gather especially being around these little kids i'm like laura we would do a scene that scene where um i throw ravioli in her direction and i'm almost hitting her and I'm being the most abusive father figure. And and before the scene, we've spoken to the Wranglers and, and the director about how this scene's going to be traumatic and almost to the point where it's like they're warning everyone, like once action is called, whatever happens, like it, it might scar you. And we do we do the scene and then afterwards, as soon as cut's called, Anna just turns into a big bright smile. That was fun. <laughs> and I'm like, you're wow. a professional actor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm like looking over at her mom being like, sorry, uh, that wasn't me. That was the character. Yeah, that's I I can't admit like every time that I'm watching a movie, even I'm not a religious sort, but like even like somebody going into, say, a church and having to use the Lord's name in vain or whatever. And I'm like, I have to take it that far, but I don't want to. So, I mean, like, I feel like with your scenes with like Aliyah Kanani, my like Midwestern, you know, yeah. kind of ethic would be like after every scene, I'd be like, I'm sorry, that's not me. That's not me. Yeah. <laughs> the actors that I worked with were just unbelievable as far as before a scene saying, look, I understand, do whatever you want. You know, you always kind of have those conversations with actors if you're going to do a scene in any capacity. Like I do a lot of improvising in the comedic world where even if it's going to be the funniest, goofiest scene, it's like, hey, just let you know, whatever I say here. And then you you don't even have to finish your sentence. Your acting partner's like, yeah, let's just play. Like, surprise me. We we got this. And there's an understanding. In, in this film, it was a bit different because Shasha and Rich, they did call upon me to improvise, which improvising comedy is one thing. Improvising drama, improvising a hate-ridden dramatic guy is a slippery slope because all of a sudden it's like, you know, just have, just say whatever you want. And it's like, okay. So then I do that and a couple of horrible things are said and then cut is called. And then there's definitely the feeling that I need to go, guys, like that was not 
Connor. That was Corey. Um, and a few times that had to happen on set where, uh, you know, that line gets blurry. And, and, and I think because this was such a independent film where a lot of people weren't, including myself, union actors, there was just like, is this actually like, what is happening here? Is he, is that him or is, is, is that the actor? It, it did get a bit weird a few times. I'm not going to lie. Can, can we go back to the scene, the scene with, with Aunt, little Anna who, you know, that blows my mind that she just can flip it on and off. And right, let's go back even further. When you go and you pick her up, you know, the woman at the bowling alley calls you and she's like, Hey, your daughter's here. And, and then you show up and you, and my heart went out to you in that first scene. Cause we'd already met your wife character. Yeah who is just an even worse person than you are. <laughs> yeah. Or your character is, rather. Sorry, I'm blurring the lines now. My heart went out to you. You know, you, you were angry, but I, I understood the anger. You were telling that lady, how, you know, how do I get you to shut the fuck up? And then you, yeah, you treat Miss Hina, Aliyah Kanani's character, pretty rough, a couple of rough scenes. And then that scene opens in the kitchen and you, pu- you put on some punk rock, which, you know, goes right to my heart. And... Laura's laughing and and then obviously everything goes south. You burn your hand and throw the, the food and she wets herself and then you go up to her and it's a very misguided, obviously, way to do things, but you take her hands and you're like, hit me. You want to hit me. I know you want to hit me. Hit me. Fight back. And it's still, it's, it's, it's obviously not the way to, to be with a child, but you know, this is this very broken character that's like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. Give me my penance. And yeah, God, I just, again, I went back to feeling bad for you. I'm like, this is just, he's trying to do the, the right thing and things are going wrong. But then the back nine of the film, y- your character is just, again, just desperate as hell. It's, it's Christmas and you're just, you're like, I need something. It's just, it's such a tragic character who I think genuinely is trying to do the right thing. And when it's not working out, instead of try, try, try again, he, it's just, he falls back on what he knows, which is anger and lashing out and viciousness. And yeah, I mean, you were everybody. And there's a reason that you guys won the the Canadian Screen Award for Best Ensemble Cast, which is an award I wish the Academy Awards would, would put in there. Spro and I talk about that. But there isn't a false note from anyone in this movie. And you, you're you just absolutely terrific. Well, thank you, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, heck yeah. You're welcome. Spro, you brought up Aliyah Kanani. We actually had the pleasure to talk to her at one point. She seems like the kind of person that after they said cut, she would probably give you some playful shit back. Is that true? Or was she staying in character and maintaining professionalism? She was just a total like pro and she kept everybody happy on set. A lot of her scenes had to deal with a classroom of children, right? And she was just so nice with these children. She had them all happy. She was super nice in between takes. We Yeah, as soon as we did our scenes, she was in, in her character, but... She's just a, a tough, tough gal. Like, I mean, she's from Mississauga. Just a little background on, on the GTA, seeing as this is a film that takes place in Scarborough. GTA is the greater Toronto area. On the other side of Toronto, there's a, a city called Mississauga. And she's from there. And I'm from Oakville, which is one past that. And we kind of have like a banter, like a shorthand being from that, that those suburban areas. So as soon as we kind of made that identity, we were talking like the same language. And it was just, it was all fun. And I felt like I knew her from high school. And she's a stand-up comedian. I think you guys are aware she's big in Australia. And uh, she's just hilarious and a joy to work with. She was, you know, I don't admit this lightly because there's there's this thing in the education world called living above reproach. We're not supposed to... 
we're not supposed to be anything but these perfect angels. So uh, I admit this slightly, but I am, I'm a teacher. And that's the first time this is our th- the end of our third season of this show. And uh, this is the first time admitting it out loud. But uh, her performance just went straight to my heart, just dealt with all the frustration and all the, you know, the very, very limited successes and mostly frustration that can come from from teaching low socioeconomic students and impoverished stakeholders and neighborhoods. So yeah, she um, she's really the beating heart of the movie. Yeah. Do you think we're going to get to see like Americans, I think should see this movie. I think everybody should see this movie and I'm not quite sure why it hasn't been picked up by one of the many streaming services. Do you have any inkling of if or when more people are going to be able to see this movie? I don't, but I do know that there's been quite a few friends on my end from out in California and stuff that have asked me, how can I see it? And I I am hopeful that it will, will come. I think again, it's like Shasha and Rich, especially Shasha from the producing standpoint, she's just very bright and and clever when it comes to this. And I think she'll figure a way to get it to to America because I think it kind of rests on her. And um, yeah, I agree with you that it's a film that should hopefully be seen. I like, you know, when you speak about it being a foreign film, when you grow up in Canada, you don't necessarily see America as foreign because we're so uh, used to your culture and, and we consume it, um, not just in television, but just like, you know, through our daily life. So it just, I feel like we're, it's weird that a film would be available in Canada, but not in America. <laughs> well, it's funny because like when we were setting up the best international fi- or the best film of 2022 episode, it was... I think we put on Mexico and Canada just because of the geographic location. Like it was just mm-hmm. so close. And then in the end, it was the Canadian film winning. And it was like, but how, why, <laughs> why is something, because I could get to Toronto from Cleveland in two hours, three yeah. hours maybe yeah. by car. And something that's so close to me is like inaccessible. I think we illegally pirated it. We'll probably cut that part out, right. but we illegally yeah, pirated the, it to watch the, the movie. <laughs> why, why are you blowing us up here, Spock? Yeah. Well, you just you decided to admit that you're a teacher, so I just figured I would throw the illegalities that we keep doing. Yes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we will help in any way that we can. Obviously, this is a film written by th- these are these are native these are First Nation. Th- this this is a film from a First Nation Canadian's point of view. Mm-hmm. This is not a film about white people and. Laura is the only redeemable white person in this entire movie. And I think, I wonder if that's part of it. I wonder if maybe they're afraid to bring it down here to America, that it will be cast aside or criticized or otherwise written off because it, you know, white people will be like, you know, there's, there's no white people in this movie that are are worth a damn except the child. And it really did. It really activated my, (laughs) it activated my white guilt. That's for damn sure. Did that occur to you at all or am I? Oh yeah. Like uh, that, the fact that it would, that America would reject it because of that is a good thought. I never thought of that. I, I definitely felt the, uh, sort of the white, um, guilt, certainly acting in it and definitely reading the script. And, and then when I saw the final cut, I, I felt, okay, wow. Like if people feel this way towards, you know, the white community, that's, uh, that's something we need to take note of for sure. Because yeah, there's definitely racial politics happening in this film. And I could see how that would maybe stoke a fire in this, especially in the States from, from what it seems like is happening down there. Oh yeah. 
Well, not only that, but like the socioeconomic, you know, like there, it's a story about a system design, not necessarily to make people's lives better, but just to kind of keep people in the rough. And in the end, it's not like, and this is how you succeed from that. No, no, no. This is like an eye opening portrait of just like, this is what's going on in plenty of neighborhoods. Like we're saying Scarborough and Canada and foreign film and everything like that. But this is like just neighborhood after neighborhood in both the countries that kids are experiencing that. And that's what I gravitated toward when watching it as an educator and as, you know, a human being is that like these situations exist everywhere. And what I love about it, and maybe you could comment about it, but like the documentary style that they do, like I love, I've always loved this way of filmmaking. It's not utilized near enough, in my opinion, like Peter Berg does it for like the five season show Friday Night Lights. And there's a good podcast now where they're talking about like behind the scenes of it all. I'm hoping that you can comment as a writer yourself and everything, like how loose was the script? How much were you able to ad lib? And then like on set, like with the blocking, were you able to kind of like move freely and like the camera just moves around you? How was it all designed? Because it, be- it started as a book, right? And the book is was made into a script. And I think the, you know, I think she said it, did, it took her a week to go from book to script. And wow. I could feel that from reading the script. I'm somebody who works in television, writing sitcom scripts where, you know, the less sort of dense text, the better. Like we like to have quick, clean action lines and lots of dialogue. And um, you could tell she just sort of was, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but it, it, it might sound like one. And the book was written so well and clean from somebody who's an, a novelist or an author. And then in one, I could tell it's like, okay, this is a first draft of a script. So therefore I turned to the book more than I did the script hmm. for what was really kind of going on just because I felt like if I have the luxury of a book, which I would take that on rather than the script, the script was obviously to- told a great story, but it wasn't necessarily held to word for word on the day. I, I kind of wish in some ways that it, it was because when you're getting into the documentary film style, you're trying to get into just whatever people would really say. And if you do a lot of improvising, you see a lot of people like to go, uh, you know, uh, and we're always thinking about what we're trying to say. Yeah, when you start to get into improvising, you start to get into like saying things that you, you as the actor get associated with when it should have just been the character. So there, there, that's tricky. I do agree that there should be more films that are documentary style. And it, in the dramatic world, it's just you got to be careful in those situations because people will they'll get stuck in the mud of like, who's saying what? Is it the character or the person when you're doing the, the documentary dramatic style? And then as far as the blocking was concerned, Rich just, he had a very, he's a very, I would call Rich a minimalist in a lot of ways. He wasn't agonizing over little details too much. He sort of wanted it to kind of breathe and just exist in a simple area. So, you know, he's a master of kind of, because I've known him so long, like we did that ravioli scene, right? And um, it was like, just get the shot of the ravioli, because I know that if I do any bad acting, you can just play the whole thing audio over a shot of boiling ravioli. And that would sort of tell the audience that, oh, look at this scene is boiling with tension. You know, like it's that kind of filmmaking. I, I felt it. The realism was just. I mean, it felt more real than any movie that I that I can even think of. And so, it, well, it's, I mean, it's a testament to to the directors and to to all of you guys. Yeah, it was, was so real. Away, so real. It hurt, it hurt sometimes. Yeah. They, I mean, the acting. Not 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 talking about my acting. Like the children, and like you you said, like Blood Cherish and Aaliyah. Like they just 
were unbelievable. So real. Do you know how hard it was to like find, especially like the kids? Like, I don't think we're touting the kids acting as much to like following these kids around, having these kids anchor this movie is just what they were able to produce and put on the screen. And as directors, you know, wrangling kids to do exactly what they needed to do. Um, Were the kids directed harder? Were they given more free reign just to try and like capture the innocence of childhood, especially in such horrible circumstances? Yeah. So I would show up to set. I'm this dark energy who's kind of the the villain of the film. I'm trying to stay angry because for some reason I thought that would help. So I'm just kind of in the corner pouting and brooding, waiting to be called to set. And these children are just, they, they, they did a great job taking care of the children. They were always thought of first to protect them and let everyone know that, okay, you're, you're about to do a scene with this angry man. And honestly, the kids, you could just feel that number one, they were respected and in the, in the set took care of that. It was a skeleton set. So there wasn't a lot it wasn't like you're showing up to to the Warner Brothers studios and taking a golf cart to set, right? Like this was like you show up to a school, there's a guy with a camera and like a thing of coffee over there. And yet they still managed to treat the children like they were stars. And the children were stars. They It was just amazing watching them perform and seeing their like unbittered minds at play. We've been jumping around here. Spro likes to Spro likes to try to just have like a flow of conversation. I'm not as good of a conversationalist as Spro, so I that's why I try to script everything out. And he's <laughs> fucking with my, he's fucking with my whole world over here right now. So, uh, <laughs> and we kind of talked about this. Why you know it's important? I think it's important for people everywhere to see this movie. But it is a Canadian film, and it was seen in Canada, thankfully, and won a whole lot of Canadian Screen Awards. What do you hope? the legacy of this film will be for Canadians? I think that it does a great job of opening up a conversation about the the education system, um, which still needs to be fixed and and always should, should always be questioned and evolving. Obviously uh, it shines a light on a part of our society that a lot of us don't know about. I didn't know that some kids literally can't, can't get into a school because these schools are full. And in the meantime, they have to wait in these sort of halfway houses between nothing and a decent education. So I think that the legacy could hopefully be to open the conversation uh, about the schooling system and continue to improve it. I like that you went with education because that's that's where my heart goes to. And I think it's obvious from the story. It's I think it shows what can happen when you have someone dedicated like Miss Hina and you have community involvement. It is so paramount to a child's success, to a school's success, to a community's success for there to be dialogue and cooperation and not this, you know, what's what was the most recent thing? You know, Joe Rogan talking about how there's litter boxes in, in schools for kids that identify as cats. It's like, right. you know, you're no, there isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, yeah, this sort of contentious nature that has come about since I've been a teacher uh, and probably before where educators are no longer trusted, where the education system is looked at as this sort of subversive element that is trying to teach your children to uh, subvert the patriarchy and um, go out into the streets chanting the proletariat shall rule and all this shit. Right. And, and, and what this movie does is it just shows what can happen for the kids when you have a dedicated teacher who is involved in not only their education, but their lives outside as well, their lives, their family lives, what's going on 
in their households. So yeah, I think that I think the uh, you're right about that. It's like the, we're focusing on some of the wrong issues with schools, maybe because they sound better on a podcast. Like you know, acting like colleges are, are these places where kids are going to get radicalized and turned into uh, a left wing army. And I think they're all frightened of that stuff. But in the, at the end of the day, it, it's about the teacher student connection and giving them a place where they feel safe at a young age. Yeah, I mean, I hear at you. At a young age too, and I think that's you, you pinpointed it. I teach higher grades. I don't te- I don't I, I'm not good with, you know, if a kid can't have a conversation with me, I'm right. like, hey, uh, hi. <laughs> I don't know. I'm very bad. I didn't grow up around little guys, so I don't I don't I suck at talking to them, but once they develop and they can have a conversation and think critically, that's where I that's where I pop in. But you can see with the older kids, the ones that had an education that meant something to them when they were younger, yeah. something that wasn't just sit down, shut up. You know, kids that that are curious, kids that maybe even still have that elementary mentality of you know I want to do well because I want I want the teacher to see that I understand what they're saying and that I'm trying and that I'm I'm learning. So it's very easy to see the ones that had Ms. Hina's when they were young and the ones that didn't. I think one thing, if I can sort of circle back, or I don't know where this lands, but you mentioned why Americans may, might not have this film yet. And I think if you look at the education system that's being depicted in this film, we do have a more socialistic mindset and, and community and society than America does. And I think this is a part of that society that you guys might not have. I don't know. But it is sort of almost a sign of what can happen with socialist socialist education gone wrong. And, I, and I'm not saying that to, to say, oh, because I know that this film, it's shining a light on issues that are happening in a socialist education system, but are trying to make them better, not saying, not demonizing, so to speak. Um, it's not going, oh, if only we were privatized and conservative, these problems would go away. That's not the, the point. The point is to say, like, look, we need to um, be mindful of these areas because things can go go sideways. Um, and perhaps because there is a socialist element, that could scare away the American audience. Yeah. Well, we, did, we didn't even talk, too, about uh, young Liam, the uh, award-winning actor who portrays Bing, yeah. who is coming to terms with his own sexuality. I mean, mm-hmm. apart from the, the the fact that the film is is not a good look right. for, for white people and that it does have, yeah, like you said, kind of socialist tendencies in the education. But I mean, show me an education system that, that doesn't have socialist tendencies. Yeah. There was a quote that I heard on from an interview that I also heard on TikTok or whatever that it was like, you're trying to ruin a good idea on the pursuit of perfect. And it's kind of like, Right. There are better ideas out there than what we currently have. And we can't just say like, no, 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 let's not try to be better just because we can't figure out that perfect solution. And I think when it comes to like the socialistic education of Canada and what was just, irrit- we just had election day hmm. a week before like recording this. And what irritates me about the American education system is levies and being like, will you guys decide whether or not you want to fund the schools of the area? If you're poor, you're not going to want to vote to raise your taxes to better the education system around you because you need all the money that you could possibly get. And the elderly don't care about, I'm broad brushing it, but like people that don't have children in the school system don't want to raise taxes to, you know, better their, but like why in America with the system that we have, are we like, hey, you guys decide whether you want to fund education. And it's like, no, 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 no. Can we just fund our education? And then we'll tell you like, if we want to raise the politician's salary, like, can we reverse this right now? (laughs) Yeah. And then you got your buddy Elon Musk coming out saying, 
who I think oh, is he's from, not my buddy. No, I know. I'm sorry. I should, but he's, he's from Can- <laughs> like he went to Queens and in, in, I don't know what he is. He says he's from Canada sometimes. Oh, he's your buddy. Yeah. He's my buddy. <laughs> and he, he decides to come out and say, Oh, by the way, you don't need a degree, you know, with a Cheshire grin. Well, buying Twitter and you're, and then everybody <laughs> thinks they don't need to go to school anymore. Yeah. So there you go. I, I'm glad I'm not in charge of anything because it makes my head swim. Yeah. But you know, yeah. what can I control as an educator? I can control the standards that I set for my students and I can control the way I make them feel. And I am very imperfect. I'm only about halfway through my career and I'm sure I've got a, a lot more growth to do. And I'm, I might never get to perfect, probably won't. But uh, I know that I can focus on that instead of trying to think of how to how to fix everything else. But yeah, before we go, just two quick closing inquiries for you. Is there something that you've yet to do in your career that you you'd kind of like to dip into? Because you've got a, a clear love for artistry and and writing. But I mean, you've got credits all over IMDb, director, producer. And is there something you'd like to do you haven't done yet? Honestly, I'd like to act in reality TV, if, if that's even called acting. Wow, you just threw me a curveball there. I yeah, wasn't expecting it. Be- because I spend so much time, like I, I, I have mimic genes in my family. Like I was born, my mom's a mimic. She spends her, all her siblings, that there's some DNA of imitating people. And, and, and my siblings and I, we spend all our time imitating and playing characters. And that's just been my life. So I'd like to see a, what I would be like in a reality show where I'm just being my, myself. I feel like it would help me find out who I am more. Would you do, and maybe this is me stereotyping because you're Canadian, but would you do like a like a wilderness one, like Naked and Afraid or Alive or something like that? Or are you thinking more hanging out in a house, like real world style? It's like keeping up with the Casey's or something. <laughs> right on. Just film me having lunch. I just want to see what it looks like. Well, you could probably just start doing that. Yeah, I don't think you need. Yeah, you're right. I could. Just grab a, grab a camera and start vlogging everywhere you go. Yeah. All right. Last question. If you could give Scarborough just one Oscar, who would take it home? You know, I, I would say this. If they had best ensemble, I would give them that. But they don't have that because the Oscars aren't perfect. They need to figure that shit out. That's one of about three Oscars Spro and I are like, you need to add this. You need to add, what was the other one, Spro? Stunt coordinator or stunt performance? Yeah, stunt coordinator. I would like to see a a completely VFX performance award for- Well, it should uh, be like practical effects and then special effects. Oh, that's that's right. I would still like to see the VFX award, you know, going all the way back to Andy Serkis as Gollum, but- Then you'd also, what about best horror and film? There's that, we get into a different- Hey, we just did our, our horror show, our horror spectacular where, yeah. I would lo- I mean, I wish the Oscars were three days long and there were, you know, 300 <laughs> awards and they could give awards to comedy performances to, oh yeah, that's, that's great. That's like India. That's how India is like a weekend event. Yeah. I think you guys just need to be happy that you guys aren't asking for recounts and having Oscar deniers. Uh, that's probably, <laughs> that might be in our future. Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds like a great movie script. Are we those people? Not I feel my like movie. we're those people. Not my, not my Oscars. <laughs> If I had to, because I, I th- I've just known Rich my whole life and I've or my whole film life, and I I think the film was incredible, but I think that at the editing just blew me away. We shot the film, and then the rumor was that Rich essentially locked himself in a room and just edited it without anybody helping him, and then showed a cut to someone, and it was pretty darn close to what ended up in the final cut. I think that's just an unbelievable feat. And I just think he did an amazing job. How much footage would you say there was for him to have to spool through? Endless. 
an That's ocean, awesome. an ocean That's of awesome. footage. Yeah. A lot of the scenes didn't make it, but then they were changed and it just what he did was amazing. The flow. Yeah, he's an incredible editor. I will say I just until our American audience can watch the movie, I just ordered Catherine Hernandez's book based off your recommendation uh, from Amazon that is available to us in the States. Reading the book, reading the script, filming the movie, like, was there a scene of the death of Laura or yeah, um, how was, was that addressed? There was a few, uh, I don't know what the protocol on this is, but there was a few scenes that were taken out, if I'm allowed to say that. But uh, she, yeah, we shot a, there wasn't like a death scene where she dies. There was a, a scene we shot where I was like laying on the couch with a couple bottles near my face and a c- cigarette butt burning and uh you could tell i was passed out and i guess laura was tugging on my jacket and i remember while watching the film going please don't cut to that that'll that'll just crush me right now if i see that as an audience member um it was just too real and it just was maybe too heavy of a insert and um i think rich did the right to made the right decision to uh not include that scene yeah Um, i mean i just got chills listening to it so yeah it was pretty heavy and there was also a scene right before it where i chased that guy out of the convenience store and i'm like chasing him around the the neighborhood and he gets away from me and i collapse into a dirty snowbank and plead to the gods and and maybe that would have been a bit heavy-fisted so I think he took that out too. He did a great job with restraint in the edit because he, like I said, he he had a whole world of footage he probably could have used. I'd love to be an editor. I think that's probably the only thing I would be qualified for. Learn the programs. Oh God. Like I was watching an editor the other day and I was like the amount of skill and like what they're learning. The computer screen just looked like a whole bunch of dots. I didn't understand and honestly, anything that she was doing. <laughs> if you're an, if, if, if I'm on a film set and I find out the director is an editor, I I instantly just feel more relief. Like when they're talking to me or when they're talking about what they need, it's like they're already sitting in their editing seat going, oh, I need that shot and I would need this. So it's it's a huge skill to have. Like, you know, in film school, you go, okay, how do I get to the director's seat if I don't just take the directing line? And I, I find the best education has been through editing. Nice. Well, we kept you a little longer than we said we would. So uh, let's just, let's wrap it up. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for your performance in this film. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. You can follow Connor on Instagram if you're an Instakid, Connor M. Casey, and uh, keep up with what's going on with him. And uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, always nice to talk about solid films. I really hope this movie comes to America so everybody can see it. Thanks a lot. Stick around. We have one more episode to conclude our season three with. We have an interview with Alia Kanani, who you could say on screen is probably Connor's nemesis in a way. And the good news is you don't have to wait two weeks for the Alia Kanani interview. It's available right now. Download, stream, listen, love. got coffee you got everything you need i'm good i had a coffee i'm honed in what restraint you had a coffee yeah just one i'm gonna have another one after this oh okay all right